Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Dr. Jean Bereson. And I'm Dr. Steve Schlossman. And we're child psychiatrists at the Clay Center for Young Healthy Minds at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Here's what we'll talk about today. Today we're going to talk about something really scary. Now, we all have fears. You know, some people are afraid of spiders, some people are afraid of snakes, some people are whatever, afraid I'm, of... I'm actually terrified of podcasts. For, I'm for actually afraid of you. Right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, and and some of the fears that, that, that kids have are kind of hardwired. For example, infants, you know, are afraid of falling. They're afraid of loud noises. They startle. So some of the fears are hardwired. So we all have these normal fears. Some, what are normal fears, Steve? So fear is a really interesting emotion because it's really primitive. It's been around since anything that's had a brain has a brain. It's based in the amygdala, the sort of source of fight or flight. It really just tells you to do one of those two things, to either run or to fight. So it's for survival. It's all about survival. And that's actually what makes it so hard to deal with because when you are scared out of your mind, and literally it means out of your mind. It means your frontal lobe's taken offline. It's only your amygdala that's calling the shots. Yeah, and sometimes fear is based on a traumatic event. Like if you're bitten by a dog, it's pretty naturally going to be afraid of dogs, right? Because that memory gets encoded near your amygdala in the hippocampus. So you, you encode the memory of the fearful event. And then every time you have similar events, you call up that emotional outburst, which includes a burst of norepinephrine. So it tweaks. It tweaks the uh, the hippocampus, tweaks the amygdala, and then bam. You're, you're ready to fight. Okay. Yep. So now um, there's a big difference between normal fears, like fears of the dark, fears of monsters, fears of snakes, things that are dangerous, and phobias. And What's the big difference between a fear and a phobia? It's a subtle difference, actually, when you think about it, because a fear of the dark isn't a problem unless you have to go to dark places. So you can't have a fear of the dark and be, say, a guy who inspects basements, right? Because then you're going down into dark places all the time. You can't have a fear of bridges in San Francisco because you've got to drive over a bunch of bridges. Well, you could have a fear. You're just not going to drive over them. But you, so then you would end up driving 150, 200 miles out of your way to get across the Bay Area. If you live in Las Vegas, it's not a problem. So a fear is different from a phobia because a phobia impairs functioning. And And there's some other things. So Fears often can respond to reassurance, to being soothed, to calming one down, and they go away. Phobias tend to be persistent, resistant to reassurance, last many, many moons, six months at least by definition. But, you know, most people that have phobias will last 20 years or more. And many people will have multiple phobias. So I think the average is three. Mm -hmm. So people who have one phobia are very likely to have more than one, and you just got to kind of probe around to find out what, what it is. Also, research tells us that phobias tend to be hereditary, and some phobias tend to be associated with psychiatric disorders. So if we're going to categorize them, there's what's called blood injection injury phobias. There's phobias of animals. There are phobias of natural environment, like thunderstorms, wide open spaces, heights. And then the situational phobias, like the dentist, going to doctors. What other situations? Uh, Well, I mean, we mentioned bridges a second ago. Flying. Yeah, flying is a huge one. Oh, that's a huge one. Yeah, uh, flying and bridges. Actually, they tend to run together. 
I was afraid, this little personal moment, I was afraid of bridges when I was teaching high school in San Francisco. That's why I brought up the Bay Area. So every single day I had to drive over the Golden Gate Bridge twice from San Francisco into Marin County and back. And I can tell you it's the phobia, the fear part is very hard. But what's even harder is the anticipation of the fear. So the feeling that you have when you're driving up to that bridge or the feeling that you have when you're on your way to the dentist office, that's when the freak out really starts. So that's called anticipatory anxiety. And it is awful. So let me give you an example of blood injection uh, and injury phobia. And I only learned about it by being a parent. So uh, I was uh, uh, in my last semester of medical school and it was in uh, West Philadelphia, beautiful sunny day. And our five-year-old was running over a little bridge, scampering over the bridge. And, you know, as many five-year-olds do, she fell down. And, you know, we figured she'd just pick herself back up. Well, she picked herself back up and then she like dropped down to the ground. We rushed over because we were a bit behind her. And then she got back up and she took a look at her scraped knee that was bloody. And then she passed out. She fainted. And I thought, oh, man. So, you know, I was going to be a pediatrician. I checked my ABCs, airway, breathing, circulation. She was breathing fine. She didn't have any head injuries. The pulse was okay. And I, you know, freaked out called a pediatrician and said, oh, that's very common. She has a blood injection injury phobia. And sure enough, she was afraid of needles and going to doctors and getting blood sticked. And I remember trying to pierce her ear. Back in the old days, pediatricians used to do ear piercings. I got no, one. they still do. They I still got, do. It's I usually got, not the dad who does it, just for the record. Well, I, go, that's go right. I, I, I got one done, but then the other one was just impossible. Uh, she just wouldn't tolerate it. Yep. Unfortunately, she's gotten over it. She goes to the doctor now. She's actually had babies and, you know. Well, that's an important point. Most people with – these are called simple phobias when you're afraid of one particular thing and that particular thing elicits a very strong response, which often results in fainting, a vasovagal response where you have a simultaneous increase and then decrease in blood pressure. So no blood can get to your brain. That's why you go down. Vasovagal meaning vascular and hitting the vagus nerve, yep. which slows the heart rate down and drops the blood pressure. Yeah, and it's actually interesting. There's even evolutionary explanations for fainting, especially with blood injection injuries, the notion is, and a lot of evolutionary biologists have, have postulated this, that when you see blood, it's likely to be your own blood. It then behooves you to go to ground so that you can continue to perfuse your brain with oxygen and you can take advantage of gravity in that way. It's harder for the blood to get to your brain if you're upright, but, but not you so know, hard when but you're not, down. But not everybody is going to faint. So, you know, particularly, you know, with thunderstorms or elevators or heights, um, well, you might faint, but it's not that common. What's interesting to me is that when I started reading more about this, lasting up to 20 years and they're so treatable but only about a quarter of people that have phobias actually get treatment and they're so easy and responsive. They're so easy to treat and so responsive to treatment. Yeah, no, but I think a lot of people don't get treatment because they're also easily avoided. You, not all, yeah. you know, you, you don't have to see a snake if you don't want to, right? So, so you don't have to deal with that phobia. Flying's harder, right? So, pe when people come for treatment for phobias, it tends to be for things that they just can't get around. You got to fly. If you're a business person, you got to fly. So, they go through these very specific programs that are designed to help them acclimate to flying. So, one, one example uh, that I, I wrote about in the blog was uh, Sally, whose parents traveled a lot and 
often went to hotels and she was terrified of elevators. They would have to literally walk up 10 or 12 flights to get to their room if they couldn't get a room on the first floor. And it, it just really ruined all the trips. So they brought her to see me and um, slowly and progressively, I used what was called exposure therapy, meaning exposing her to elevators and using what's called systematic desensitization. So I systematically desensitized her to the feared elevator. So you don't just throw in an elevator all at once. No, that's called flooding. And actually, flooding has been shown to actually make matters a lot worse. Right. So what I did was I went in the elevator myself, and I actually had my cell phone on, and I went, Sally, you know, Gene to Sally, Gene to Sally, you know, taking off, coming in for a landing. And she got out of the elevator, and she thought it was kind of funny, and she laughed. And then the next time, I went in with her and her mom, and we went up a flight. And we came back down and things went well. And, and typically we'll teach our patients during those times relaxation techniques so they can quell those fight or flight responses. They do breathing. They can slow their heart rate down. All those things are, are useful. But the crux of it is this slow exposure to the thing that makes them afraid, which often starts first with a visualization of the thing. Yeah, I would show – you know, you, you could show pictures on, on the computer of elevators. You can show elevators going up and down. You can show people you know, coming off of elevators. You can show a video of, of something like that and helping her kind of yeah, no, I, accept I, that. I got to wrap up with this story. Um, so, so right now – and this does not mean that I live in a slovenly house um, because this is quite common. You live in an urban area. We have a rat who's taken up residence in our house and we're working very hard to have that rat go elsewhere. But it has freaked my wife out. She can't stand the thought of it. She can't say the word and she certainly can't handle looking at it on the rare occasions where we've seen it. So my 10-year-old daughter, without knowing anything about this, it just made sense to her. She said, Mommy, I think you need to look at some pictures of rats. And my wife said, okay. So my 10-year-old daughter went to the computer, typed in a few words. My wife went and sat down and looked at the pictures. And before she could get afraid, she said, why are all these rats wearing Santa Claus hats? And my daughter said, because I typed in Christmas rats. I thought that would be easier at first. <laughs> and then and then you progressively showed her more and more pictures. I didn't. My 10-year-old daughter did. And my, I hope my wife paid my daughter for that session. But did you get <laughs> – did you actually bring a rat into the – or a little – or a mouse? We don't have to bring one. And he's wandering around the kitchen <laughs> as is. But yes, eventually – you know, we have hamsters. We have guinea pigs. There's something about the presence of the rat itself that's freaking her out. So it's interesting because what I did with Sally was we went up – up and up eventually together and then alone. She went up alone and cell phone to cell phone kind of contacted me. We went through every single elevator at MGH. The worst one was actually the shortest ride possible, but it was in the old Bullfinch building, which is pretty scary because this elevator will scare almost anybody. It's small. It's rickety. It shakes when you move. It The lights are dark. It, it also it, doesn't move immediately. So it doesn't <laughs> do what you want it to do. You push the button and it sits there for a second. Yeah. That sort of level of uncertainty. Right. In. But she was able to tolerate that. And, but, you know, after, you know, a number of months of just progressive stuff. We, but what did you do about the rat? I mean, you're not going to give your wife a rat to hold on to and that is with. true. That's that's you good, could. good marital advice from my boss here. No rat will be given to my <laughs> wife by me. But we are going to help her to tolerate the idea that rats exist in the world and she might occasionally see one. Actually, you know, I mean not necessarily wild ones, but you know, my my niece has a pair of rats as pets. She's in vet school and she loves them. They're bright, they're affectionate, they're cuddly. Yeah, they're kind of creepy looking, but I mean, you know. But you probably wouldn't I mean it's an interesting point. 
we've tried that. We've said to my wife, people have pet rats yeah. and they're really cool and they're really smart. I have friends in college who did. She can't go there. So so you find out what people can tolerate and that's where you begin your desensitization. She can't tolerate that thought. So you take a step back and you say, we're just going to look at pictures for now. Well, could you give her like a rat stuffed animal? Uh, we could do that. Maybe that's that'll be the next step once we finally rid ourselves of this. Bottom line about phobias though, they're super common. And the other thing that I wanted to mention before we wrap up is that if they're really intractable and the fear factor is huge, sometimes medications can be really helpful. Yep. There are anti-anxiety medications. People take them for flying and, and other things. There are uh, what's called beta blockers that slow the heart rate down that that actually stop tremor and shaking and, and the physical manifestations of anxiety and antidepressants. And they can be used even for a short period of time to help go through the behavioral treatments that we've been talking about. Right. No, that's that's what I wanted to say. They are super common. If they get bad, we have treatments in addition to these behavioral interventions we've talked about. The medicines work very well. They're very safe. They shouldn't be used, you know, in a cavalier way, but if they're used carefully by someone who knows what they're doing, these are really, really treatable conditions. So, so the message for our listeners is um, – if you or your kids have a phobia and you're uh, really avoiding something dreadful or that's seemingly dreadful, you know, like the dentist, don't suffer. Get yourself some treatment. It's fairly easy to do and it doesn't take that long and, and you can overcome overcome the phobia. Yep. Yep. It's one of the few things we have in psychiatry that's got a discrete beginning, middle, and end. Well, thanks a lot for listening, everybody. If you want to write some comments, do so on our on our blog. I'm Gene Bresson. And I'm Steve Schlossman. Thanks. Thanks.